Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 17 through 20. And I've pulled up today the CEV. I look at this translation a lot when I study. Everybody needs to study with multiple Bible translations. I would say that for the large majority of the time, there is really no need for you, when you read the Bible, to even be that familiar with Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. I believe that our translators have done a marvelous job for the large majority of the time. There are cases where some things are ambiguous and some things are difficult. And so I think you should get you a good three to five Bible translations and do comparative study. You can get you a more wooden literal translation like the New American Standard Bible. Or you can go to a paraphrase. I like to read the New Living Translation. It is a paraphrase. The Contemporary English Version is actually not a paraphrase. It's an actual translation. But I've pulled a lot of the verses today from the Contemporary English Version just to kind of mix it up a little bit because I've been quoting from the KJV and the WEB a lot so far in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what this uh, sermon is a continuation of, my series through the Sermon on the Mount. And today I'll be teaching on Matthew 5.19, one aspect of Matthew 5.19. I'll deal with another aspect of 5.19 and then verse 20 next week. But we'll cover some of 5.19 today. So let's open by reading Matthew 5.17 through 20 in the Contemporary English Version of the Bible. This is our Master and Savior. He speaks and He says, Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. That's pretty good. Heaven and earth may disappear, but I promise you that not even a period or comma will ever disappear from the law. Everything written in it must happen. If you reject even the least important command in the law and teach others to do the same, you will be the least important person in the kingdom of heaven. But if you obey and teach others its commands, you will have an important place in the kingdom. You must obey God's commands better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law obey them. If you don't, I promise you that you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. So in the last two sermons I've covered Matthew 5 17 and I've covered Matthew 5 18. So I'm not going to go back over or rehearse or review anything on those two verses in this sermon. I do though at this time, I thought about this today. I figured I would do this just in case. If anyone has a question on Matthew 5 verse 17 or verse 18, you can ask me now. Or if you want to wait till at the end of the service today and ask me in private, that's understandable as well. So does anybody have a question they'd like to ask right now? Maybe Matthew 5, 17 or verse 18. I'm trying my best to cover it in detail, but I'm just a man, so we don't cover everything. So I don't see any hands right now. But you can feel free to ask me after the service as well if you have any questions on those two verses. I think that these are extremely important verses. I believe that... These verses are just as important when it pertains to the Gospels or the Epistles as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. I believe this is Yeshua's Shema. 
is the most important passage in the Gospels. This is why Yeshua came. I didn't come to do away with the law. I didn't come to destroy it. But I came to do the opposite of it. I came to confirm it or establish it. So, in Matthew 5 verse 19, this is the verse that gives us the reason that we ought to spend our time reading the commandments, studying the commandments, and putting the commandments to practice. Once again, 19 says, If you reject even the least important command in the law and teach others to do the same, you will be the least important person in the kingdom of heaven. But if you obey and teach others its commands, you will have an important place in the kingdom. Now, I can say for myself, and I do spend a lot of time studying and trying to put into practice the commandments. But I can say, I don't know all of the commandments. I still have to continue to study the commandments in my life. We should spend our time studying the commandments. I'm still studying. And there are some times when people ask me a question about the commandments, and I still have to say, I don't know. Or I'm not sure. And I want to encourage you, when people ask you a question, in general really, but especially about the Bible, if you don't know, just say that I don't know. Just say I need to go back and study that, or I need to start studying that. I'm not sure about that. That's a lot better and more honest than trying to make up an answer on the spot. So don't ever be embarrassed to say, I don't know. There are all, all of us have things that we do not yet know. We read, we study, we reread, we restudy, and then we begin to apply the commandments. And then as we grow in grace and in knowledge in our walk with Yahweh, we, I believe, can become better and better at keeping the commandments that Yahweh has given us. If we are interested in heaven, we must be interested in the commandments, brothers and sisters. Our status or level in the kingdom is based upon our devotion to the commandments, according to verse 19. Now you might say, Brother Matthew, I have really messed up. I haven't been spending my time studying the commandments. I've really put them on the back burner. And what about me? And the answer to that is, you are still breathing if you're listening to this Amen. sermon. So it is not too late Amen. to change your mind and turn around and do the right thing. Uh, Brother Matthew has messed up many, many times as well. We are all sinners, but by the grace of Yahweh. Uh, so you're breathing. Make a decision today. I'm going to start reading and studying the commandments, applying them to my life, and teaching others. Teaching others doesn't mean that you have to be in a teaching position. Uh, the Apostle Paul did say that the Messiah gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastoring teachers for the perfecting of the saints. And so he has that fourfold ministry that he has given to us for the church to perfect the saints. But there is a capacity in which all of us are teachers. All of us are evangelists. All of us can witness to people as we meet people from day to day. And not only do we teach with our mouth, but we teach with our life. All of us are teachers by our example. We can either be a good teacher by giving people a good example to follow, or we can be a bad teacher by giving people a bad example to follow. You're going to set an example one way or the other. 
either a good example or a bad example. So verse 19 applies to all of us. As I think, beginning at verse 1, when Yeshua sits down there on the mountain and begins to speak to everyone that's listening, all of His students there, all of His pupils, men, women, probably children there as well. And He tells them, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. You're the salt of the earth. Don't think I came to destroy the law. Whoever practices and teaches even the least of the commandments will be great in the kingdom. I think He's talking to everybody, not just us teachers in the church or pastors in the church. Psalm 90, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That's King James Version. Let's read this from the contemporary English version. Psalm 90 beginning at verse 10. We can expect 70 years or maybe 80 if we are healthy. But even our best years bring trouble and sorrow. Suddenly our time is up and we disappear. No one knows the full power of your furious anger. But it is as great as the fear that we owe to you. Teach us to use wisely all the time that we have. Now here, my dad used to quote this to me. I heard him quote it in church when he was a pastor or minister. And he would say that the psalm says that we can expect three score and ten years. It's old KJV. It's what we used when I was growing up. That's what I learned my memory verses out of. And that's 70 years. And by reason of strength, he gives us 80. And praise Yahweh, some of us live nowadays to 90 and 100. And in the Scriptures, we know that there were some saints that lived longer even than that. So praise Yahweh that He gives us our time here on earth. But our time here on this earth is but a kick in the bucket compared to what our time could be in the kingdom of heaven, living forever with immortality. Yahweh promises, Yahweh promises us eternal life. He promises us eternal life for the righteous, not for the wicked, but for the righteous. And that means immortality, deathlessness, Never again to be sick. Never again to die anymore. Never again even to sin anymore. We talked about that recently. Should not we focus more on that kingdom than on this kingdom? By reason of strength, 80. I was reading the statistics not long ago. And the statistics, this is not to say that some people don't live longer than this, but statistically, both male and female in America live to mid to late 70s on average. Compare that to a thousand years or 10,000 years. Compare that to eternity. 12 says, teach us to use wisely all the time we have. Our time is used most wisely when we spend it learning how to obey the commandments of Yahweh. Matthew 5.19 is the conclusion to verses 17 through 18. They must dovetail. If your interpretation of verse 19 doesn't flow from verses 17 through 18, it is a wrong interpretation. The word therefore, notice verse 19, whoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments. I think the KJV in verse 19 begins with the word therefore. And therefore means on the basis of what I've just said. 
So Yeshua is saying, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle shall pass. Heaven and earth may pass away. But until everything's accomplished, even the little yod or the curvatures in the Hebrew language in the law, they'll remain true until heaven and earth pass away. Therefore, on the basis of that, I tell you, and then he goes on and pronounces the keeping of the commandments in verse 19. So the ongoing validity and the firmness of the law goes beautifully with understanding verse 19 exactly as it is written. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What are the least commandments? He mentions the least commandments in verse 19. The word least means smaller, shorter, lighter, something that seems insignificant in comparison to something that is bigger or more weighty, heavier. For example, men, which would you rather your wife to do? Would you rather your wife to commit murder or to put on a garment made of linen and woolen? I think that's a pretty easy question. Both are mentioned in the law. The law forbids murder uh, and the unlawful taking of a life. And the law forbids us wearing a garment that is made of both linen and woolen. But comparatively speaking, I think that us men would rather our wife put on a linen woolsey garment, Lindsay woolsey, as Strong's defines it, versus murder. Or what about for the women in here? Would you rather your husband commit adultery or shave his beard? Now, I know my wife, which one she would pick on that one. <laughs> but my point is, is that there is a heavier command and there is a lighter command. Uh, for example, here's another one. Life ranks higher than the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a very weighty command. It's a heavy command. It's in the top ten foundational commandments. But according to Yeshua in Mark chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, He says that it's lawful for us to do good on the Sabbath. And in that context, what He's talking about is there's a man that has a withered hand. And Yeshua is about to reach out and heal this man's withered hand to where he can use his hand again. There's even cases in the Gospels where Yeshua talks about to the Jewish leaders and he says, which one of you on the Sabbath day does not go down to his animal stall and loose his ox or his donkey so that he can be taken to the watering hole and get something to drink? It's lawful to do good. It's lawful to heal or mend on the Sabbath day. So life, taking care of life, saving life, Performing healing is weightier than even the Sabbath. So I think right here, what Yeshua is doing is He's making a play on what He's just said about the jots and the tittles in verse 18. Remember the jots and tittles are the yod in Hebrew, and the tittles are even the little curvatures on the Hebrew letters, both in the old Paleo-Hebrew and even in the Aramaic block script Hebrew. Not one of those will pass away from the law until everything's accomplished. So then I think when he says the least of these commandments in verse 19, he's making a play back on those small little strokes in the Hebrew. Okay? So, these are some examples of the least commandments. What about laws that are only mentioned one time in the Scriptures? These might be what we call some of the least of the commandments. Laws only mentioned once 
instead of twice or a dozen times. Maybe that's how we can determine the least commandment. We don't want to break even the least of these commandments. Yeshua teaches us that in Matthew 5.19. But they are lighter rather than the more heavy ones. Here's a couple of laws that are only mentioned one time in the Scriptures. One is Deuteronomy 22.6-7, reading out of the CEV again. As you walk along the road, you might see a bird's nest in a tree or on the ground. If the mother bird is in the nest with either her eggs or her baby birds, you are allowed to take the baby birds or the eggs, but not the mother bird. Let her go free, and Yahweh will bless you with a long and successful life. This law is only mentioned one time. and It's showing that we are to even honor the animal life. Uh, if you read the commentators, there's different takes on the reason for this law. I could give you my take on what I think is the reason for this law, but that's not what's most important. What's most important is it's a commandment. Whether or not we understand the reason doesn't really matter. We're to obey. Sometimes Yahweh blesses us with understanding. Sometimes we never get the understanding on why Yahweh gave a law. doesn't matter. We don't need to understand it. main thing is it's a commandment. Here's another one. In Leviticus 19, 23-25, CEV again says this, After you enter the land, you will plant fruit trees, but you are not to eat any of their fruit for the first three years. In the fourth year, the fruit must be set apart as an expression of thanks to me, Yahweh Almighty. Do this, and in the fifth year, those trees will produce an abundant harvest of fruit for you to eat. Here again, this is only mentioned one time. This might be what we may call the least of the commandments. Only mentioned once in the law, not necessarily in the Ten Commandments. But yet it's a commandment. Why? Again, it doesn't really matter to us as to why. Yahweh has a reason. He's the boss. He's the Father. Father knows best. He has a reason. Whether or not we understand doesn't matter. This is a commandment. Might be what we would consider one of the least of the commandments. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 24, Yeshua is giving a dressing down of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's whipping them up one side and down the other. Woe unto you. Woe unto you. If I remember right when I taught through Matthew 23, I think there's eight woes that Yeshua gives to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, Because if you look at the scribes and Pharisees, they looked like they were the most religious people on the earth. They looked like they were the most righteous. But they were some of the most wicked according to Yeshua. And these are the people that He saved His strongest rebuke for. was the religious leaders or the religious teachers of the day. One of the things He rebuked them for here in this verse is straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. As it says in verse 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And if you think about that, both gnats and camels are unclean animals, right? And Yeshua is making a play on what they're doing here and saying what they're doing or their activity is like they're so worried about a little gnat that they make sure they strain out the gnat and don't get any gnat in their water before they drink it because they will be eating something unclean. But yet, they're swallowing down a camel. How big is a camel compared to a gnat? Thousands and thousands of times bigger than a gnat. See? So he's saying you're neglecting these big things, but you're paying so close attention to the small things. And, and he tells us what one of the small things is, what one of the least of the commandments is. And what it is is, is tithing. 
Yeshua likens tithing to one of the least of the commandments. Look at verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The word hypocrites means a pretender, a play actor. For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. These are like herbs out of a garden. And have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. This is one of the verses that I like to show my friends from other denominations when they make such a strong dichotomy on law and gospel. Which I believe the gospel is found in the law. I believe the gospel promise is the law written on our hearts. But I like to show them this verse because it says that mercy and faith are weighty matters in the law. Now remember, this is when Yeshua was still alive in His ministry. He had not died, had not resurrected. No epistle had been written to any New Testament church, quote-unquote. And He says, justice, mercy, and faith are weighty matters in the law. And He tells the Pharisees, woe to you because you've neglected these big, important matters in the law. But yet you're so careful, while you're neglecting the big ones, you're so careful to tithe on your smallest garden plants. Now, what we would normally hear in anti-law teaching today is don't worry about the small things. Only focus on the big things. But that's not what Yeshua says, is it? You know what He says at the end? He says, but you ought to have done these, speaking of justice, mercy, and faith, and not to have left the other undone. Speaking of tithing. Or it could go the other way, depending on how you read the text there. Either way, Yeshua is saying that both the great matters in the law and the small matters in the law need to be considered and obeyed. But you should not pay close attention to the small matters while at the same time neglecting the bigger matters. You kind of see what I'm saying there? Least of the commandments. They're still important even though they're least. Now we're going to move on to what it means to be least in the kingdom. There are two schools of thought on this, and I'm going to cover only one view of least in the kingdom in this sermon. I will save the second school of thought or second view for my next sermon. But view number one on what least in the kingdom means is that least in the kingdom of heaven refers to people that are in the kingdom, but they have a lesser rank. Now this may be, I don't know, the first time you've ever heard anything like this. I'm going to show you that this is taught in the Scriptures, whether or not Matthew 5 and 19 teaches this or not. It is possible that Matthew 5 19 teaches this concept, that somebody can be in the kingdom, receive salvation, be in the kingdom, but have a lesser rank. It's possible 5 and 19 teaches this. Regardless, there are other Scriptures I'll show you that do teach this. I want you to think, when I talk about rank or status or level, think about this in relation to soldiers in the military. You have a private, and then you have somebody of higher rank, maybe a sergeant, or a lieutenant, or a lieutenant colonel, or a captain. There's different ranks in the military, but all of the men there are in the military. And that's what I'm talking about, that the kingdom of heaven will have people inside of it, people that are saved from their sins, 
but yet there will be different ranks or levels in the kingdom. And if we take that to be what Matthew 5 and 19 is talking about, the ranks or the levels in the kingdom are determined by our devotion or lack of devotion to the commandments. Now, here is a verse that lends credence to that interpretation. And I think it's talking about the same context. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant of mine they broke, although I was a husband to them, says Yahweh. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and I will write it in their heart. I will be their mighty one and they shall be my people. They will no longer each teach his neighbor and every man teach his brother saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me. Look at this. From the least to the greatest or from their least to their greatest, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is a new prophecy about the new covenant. And I believe that the new covenant began with the death of the Messiah. But I don't believe that the new covenant has come to complete fruition until the final or second coming of the Messiah. One of the reasons I don't think so is because we still have to teach every man his neighbor and his brother to know Yahweh. We still have the ability to sin. I believe at the final kingdom we won't when we're given immortality. That ability will be taken away from us. But here in a prophecy about the new covenant, about the kingdom of Yahweh and its finality, it mentions that everybody will know Yahweh from the least to the greatest. That's talking about people inside the kingdom. Some ranked lower, some ranked higher. He will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This view of least in the kingdom can be centered in on the word break in Matthew 5 verse 19. Whoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments. Now if we translate that as it's translated here, and I believe this is the World English Bible I've got on the screen then it seems like these are people just going around breaking the commandments. And the question that a lot of people in the Torah community ask is, why do people that just blatantly go around breaking the commandments, why are they still in the kingdom? Why are they least in the kingdom? Well, an answer, a answer to that, is that this word break, the Greek word luo, it can be translated as loosen. Therefore, whoever shall loosen one of these least commandments. As a matter of fact, in the King James Version, the word luo is translated either loose or loosen about 30 times. That's the English word that the KJV translators chose the most to bring the Greek luo into English. To loose or to loosen. For instance, in Matthew 21 verse 2, Yeshua asks somebody to untie a donkey. World English Bible. The King James says to loose a donkey. So, loosen here, if we translate this, whoever therefore shall loosen one of the least of these commandments, loosen could mean that you misinterpret a commandment and therefore you cause minor faults in the practice of a commandment. 
Remember what we talked about, about destroy and fulfill? How that in the cultural context of rabbinical teaching, when rabbis would misinterpret a commandment, it was said by the other rabbis in the community, that rabbi destroyed the law. But when a rabbi would interpret a commandment properly, the other rabbis would look at him and say, it's a good teacher, he fulfilled the law. So whether he interpreted it properly to fulfill or misinterpreted it to destroy, this could be understood as loosened, meaning you have misinterpreted a commandment and therefore you have loosened its effect to some degree. Not that you're blatantly, unrepentantly breaking the commandment, but you've loosened it to some degree and thereby because you've loosened even the least of the commandments, you'll have a lower rank in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is significant here about this is the use of binding and loosing in Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18. Now, when I was growing up in church, I heard it taught that when Yeshua told Peter or when he told other believers in Matthew 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That it was probably talking about demonic activity. Bind a demon on earth... It's bound in heaven and loose, loosed in heaven. And I think that that particular interpretation, although I do believe in the casting out of demons and things like that, it's in the Scriptures, I don't think that's what binding and loosing is talking about. Binding and loosing, and I want to encourage you, you can read this. I have here J.B. Lightfoot and his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica. This is volume 2 right here. Now, J.B. Lightfoot goes into extensive detail on Matthew 16, 19. After Yeshua tells the Apostle Peter, You are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing in that day and time when Yeshua spoke that, all of the Hebrew people would have understood Him to be talking about that binding meant you forbid a practice and loosening meant you permitted a practice. It was when you would study the Torah and you would come to an understanding of how the commandment was to be obeyed or disobeyed, you would forbid certain practices that was called binding and you would loose certain practices that was called loosing or you would, uh, I should say, permit certain practices that was called loosing. So J.B. Lightfoot does a good job. He was an English theologian and the Bishop of Durham back in the 1800s, the late 1800s. And he deals with this at length and gives several quotations from Hebrew history to prove that point about binding and loosing. Uh, This is also mentioned in Matthew 18 when Yeshua teaches us how to handle somebody that's in unrepentant sin. Uh, remember what Yeshua says? He says, if you see your brother or your sister in, in sin, and He's obviously talking about a sin that they're not worried about, they don't care about, they're unrepentant. He says, the first thing that you do is what? Go to them in private. Go to them in private. If they listen to you, you've won your brother or your sister. He says, if they don't listen to you, the next thing you do is take two or more witnesses with you. And you go talk to them again. That of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Hopefully, they'll listen to you then. Because when a brother brother or sister is in unrepentant sin, our hope should not be their destruction. Our hope should be that they come to their senses and they see the truth of the law and that they repent and strive to obey. But if they don't listen with the witnesses, then he says, bring it before the congregation. And then if they still don't listen, he says, then they are to be to you as a heathen or a tax collector what Yeshua says. 
And then he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And in that context, he's talking about binding means you retain their sin. Loosing means you forgive their sin. If you continue to read in that chapter in Matthew 18, the parable talks about one man whose sins were bound. They were not forgiven. Why were they not forgiven? Because he wouldn't forgive his brother from his heart of a small debt when he had been forgiven of a big debt. So one man was forgiven, the other was not. And Yeshua says, so it shall be for each of you. I read this today and when I read it I said, "Mm," because it's so true. Um, but it's so hard. Yeshua says, So also shall it be for all of you who do not forgive your brothers and your sisters from your heart. Yahweh is not obligated to forgive you. That is a strong text. So, in that case, the Father has the authority to bind or loose. He can forgive or He can retain, uh, depending on the circumstance there. And the apostles had that authority uh, as well. Um, this is mentioned at the end of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, this is a text that not a lot of people know about, but Yeshua breathes on the disciples, at least 11 of them, not Judas Iscariot. But he breathes on them, and He says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit through His breath. I think He's making a play on words there, because the word for spirit in Greek and Hebrew can be translated as breath as well, whether it be ruach in Hebrew or uh, pneuma in Greek. And then he says, after he breathes on them, and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit to the apostles, to the disciples. He said, Whoever sins you forgive shall be forgiven. Whoever sins you retain shall be retained. In other words, they had the authority to look over a situation and give the forgiveness of sins out to certain people that were repentant. But if somebody was unrepentant, they would retain them from the forgiveness of sins. I've talked about this when I've taught on the Lord's Supper before. And we do the Lord's Supper around here one time a year. And I'm, I'm very flexible when it comes to the Lord's Supper because none of us are worthy of Yeshua's body and blood. So as long as somebody is a believer, then I welcome them to the Master's Supper. But there have been times, and I've done this in private, but there have been times where people are unrepentant. And I have, I have told them that the Supper is not for them. Because it's not. If you're unrepentant, if you don't have sorrow in your heart for your sin, if you don't want to strive to do righteousness, then the body and the blood of Yeshua, even metaphorically, is not for you. It's only for those who are repentant. It's only for those who have sorrow over their sin. It's not for perfect people. None of us are perfect yet. It's for repentant people. It's for penitent people. So I think that this is what binding and loosing is talking about. I think this is part part of what Yeshua meant when He gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. He gave him the authority and the other apostles. He gave him the authority to bind, to forbid, or to loose, to permit. That's a good way to understand Matthew 5.19. Whoever therefore shall loosen one of the least commandments. Meaning you read, read the commandment, but you didn't spend enough time studying it. And so thereby you got the interpretation incorrect. You loosened it you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. That is a way to understand that. Least in the kingdom of heaven should not be a position we strive to attain. First thing people want to say when you talk about people being in the kingdom, but least, they want to say, well, as long as I make it, 
I just want to be there. And there's a sense comparatively that that's true. Psalm 84 verse 10, David says, For one day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my mighty one than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. But that's comparatively speaking. Would you rather be a doorkeeper or be a wicked person? Well, if that's your two choices, then you'd rather be a doorkeeper, right? But least in the kingdom is not a goal that we should have. We shouldn't say, well, I'll be okay. I just want to be least in the kingdom. That shouldn't be our goal. (laughs) That shouldn't be something that we should strive for. That's not the attitude to take. The verse is just saying that there will be some least and some great depending on how we handle the law in our individual lives. So I don't want you to take this teaching. I was very careful when I was putting this together. Don't take this teaching and think, well, it's all right. Brother Matthew said, make it to the kingdom as long as I'll be least. I really ain't got to worry about that commandment. Really ain't got to worry about that commandment. That's not what I'm teaching at all. That's one of the reasons I have a problem with a doctrine that some people teach called universal reconciliation. And this does cause laxness in people's lives. Universal reconciliation is the belief that eventually everybody will have salvation. Now, I don't think that that's scriptural. Some of them go so far to say that even Satan himself will have salvation in the end. And I believe that that doctrine causes laziness in people's lives because they, they begin slowly but surely to relax themselves, uh, disregarding more and more of the commandments. And I think universal reconciliation, that doctrine, I think, is going to send a lot of people to Gehenna, the lake of fire, due to laxity or laziness in mentality. So I'm not trying to promote that at all. Um, Let me go over a couple of texts that go along with this ranking in the kingdom idea. I'm going to go over two texts. One is in Luke 19. I'm going to pull these up. Luke 19. And I'm going to read beginning at verse 11. And I think I'm going to go for the contemporary English version because we've been reading a lot out of that for this sermon. Parable of the Ten Minas. What in the world's a mina? Look up the word mina, it means a pound, like a, a measurement of, of weight. So Luke nineteen eleven uh, to the end of the parable. As we read this, think about what I talked about. Least in the kingdom, greatest in the kingdom, ranks in the kingdom. Think about this in relation to the parable. The crowd was still listening to Yeshua as He was getting close to Jerusalem. Many of them thought that Yahweh's kingdom would soon appear. And Yeshua told them this story. A prince once went to a foreign country to be crowned king and then to return. But before leaving, he called in ten servants and gave each of them some money. He told them, use this to earn more money until I get back. But the people of his country hated him and they sent messengers to the foreign country to say, we don't want this man to be our king. After the prince had been made king, he returned and called in his servants. He asked them how much they had earned with the money they had been given. The first servant came and said, Sir, with the money you gave me, I have earned ten times as much. That's fine, my good servant, the king said. Since you have shown that you can be trusted with a small amount, you will be given ten cities to rule. Notice, what he did with what he was given determined His greatness. He's made the ruler over ten cities. 
The second one, verse 18, the second one came and said, Sir, with the money you gave me, I have earned five times as much. The king said, you will be given five cities. Notice, lesser. He's earned not as much, so he gets a lesser rulership. Five times. Another servant came and said, Sir, here is your money. I kept it safe in a handkerchief. You are a hard man, and I was afraid of you. You take what isn't yours, and you harvest crops you didn't plant. You worthless servant, the king told him. You have condemned yourself by what you have just said. You knew that I am a hard man, taking what isn't mine and harvesting what I've not planted. Why didn't you put my money in the bank? On my return, I could have had the money together with interest. Then he said to some other servant standing there, Take the money away from him and give it to the servant who earned ten times as much. But they said, Sir, he already has ten times as much. The king replied, Those who have something will be given more, but everything will be taken away from those who don't have anything. And this verse 27 is not one that gets quoted a lot, but it's in the Scriptures, and we shouldn't shy away from texts like this. He says, Now bring me the enemies who did not want me to be their king. Kill them while I watch. Now, that last verse could relate to Matthew 5 verse 20. Remember what Matthew 5 20 said. I'll talk about it more next week. Unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. That may be these servants that hid their talent, hid their mina, and didn't do anything with it. And then the least would be the one that got the ruler over the five cities. The great would be the one that was ruler over the ten cities. That's a way to understand this parable. I think we understand if we back back up to verse 11 and 12 that Yeshua, when He says a prince once went to a foreign country to be crowned king and then to return. And notice in verse 11 it says, Many of them thought that Yahweh's kingdom would soon appear. I believe that Yeshua is the prince. And the foreign city that He went to is heaven. And He's crowned king by the Father. And then one day He will return. And He will repay us according to our Works, it says. Now, that's one text. Let's look at another one. In 1 Corinthians, I believe it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Apollos, that was a co-worker with Paul in the ministry, Apollos and I are merely servants who helped you to have faith. It was the Lord who made it all happen. I planted the seeds, Apollos watered them, but Yahweh made them sprout and grow. I told somebody one time, they said, what are you growing in your garden? I said, I don't grow anything. Yahweh grows it. I plant and I water, but Yahweh gives the growth. That's what it says, right? Now, I know he's using it for a spiritual but he's, he, you, the spiritual doesn't make sense unless the natural is true. So one plants, one waters, but Yahweh gives the growth. Verse 7, What matters isn't those who planted or watered, but Yahweh who made the plants grow. And in context here, there's people that are arguing in the Corinthian church, and some are saying, well, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Others are saying, I'm a disciple of Paul. And Paul is saying, quit looking at us. We're just planters and waterers. It's Yahweh that matters. He's the one that gives the growth. When man gets in the way, oftentimes pride gets in the way. We want to remove ourselves out of the way. 
my pastor that I was under when I was growing up, at the end of his prayer, a lot of times he would say, when I'm finished preaching, let me hide behind the cross and let them only see you. And I like that. Because you shouldn't put your faith um, ultimately in a pastor. You should put your faith in the one who's flawless, our Messiah. So verse 7 again, what matters isn't those who planted or watered, but Yahweh who made the plants grow. The one who plants is just as important as the one who waters. And each one will be paid for what they do. Now, here's where we're going to get into the rewards again. Each person will be paid for what they do. So we're talking about reward based upon works. Apollos and I work together for Yahweh, and you are Yahweh's garden and Yahweh's building. Yahweh was kind and let me become an expert builder. I laid a foundation on which others have built, but we must each be careful how we build because the Messiah is the only foundation. Whatever we build on that foundation, listen to this, Messiah is the foundation. Paul is saying whatever we build on that foundation will be tested by fire on the day of judgment. And then everyone will find out if we have used gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Now, if gold, silver, and precious stones are tested by fire, what will happen? They'll remain. They'll purify. But if wood, hay, and straw are tested by fire, what will happen? They'll be burned up. They'll be destroyed. We will be rewarded if our building is left standing. Verse 15 is the key here. But if it is destroyed by the fire, what is destroyed? Our work, our building... We will lose everything, yet we ourselves will be saved like someone escaping from the flames. Now, Roman Catholicism has used this verse to teach purgatory. How that people can escape out of the flames of purgatory after they have died outside of Christ. I don't think that this is talking about purgatory. I think this is talking about those of us who build on the foundation. You can't lay another foundation. It's the Messiah. He is the chief cornerstone. One man said that our Messiah was an American Indian. Another man said, how do you know that? He said, well, he's called Chief Cornerstone. (laughs) That was a joke I heard one time growing up in church. But Chief Cornerstone means, in, in this case, in the Scriptures, in the Gospel of Matthew, that he is that corner block on the foundation that everything else is pulled square from. That's what it's talking about. And in the prophecy it says, Yahweh speaking, he says, I laid in Zion. Uh, a cornerstone, a sure foundation. You believe in the sure foundation, uh, you won't be ashamed. So we build on that foundation by the works that we do. And this says some people build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And then when it comes time for the fire of judgment, their work remains. But some people build with other materials. Wood, Hay and stubble. When it comes time for the fire of judgment, what happens? The work is burned up. But verse 15 says, yet we ourselves will be saved. Could this be talking about somebody that's least in the kingdom? Somebody that makes it in the kingdom, they escape themselves from the fire, but they didn't have really good works, speaking of commandment keeping here on the earth. So their work is destroyed, but yet they're saved so as by fire. They're least in the kingdom. They're still there but maybe they're a private instead of a lieutenant colonel. Now, let me close by saying this. At the very least, 
In Matthew 5.19, Yeshua is teaching, at the very least, that our level of commandment keeping now, in the here and now, equals our level of greatness in the afterlife. That's at the very least what Yeshua is teaching here. Remember Psalm 90 verse 10. We only live here for a short time. Seventy years, if by reason of strength, eighty. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to use our time wisely. That's what that means. How we live determines what our status will be for eternity. At the very least, our commandment keeping now determines our greatness then in the kingdom. Point number two, Yeshua is teaching rewards based upon works. This is a form of works righteousness. It's the same thing in Matthew 5.20 where He says, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. I do not believe that Yeshua is talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ in that text. I do believe in the doctrine of imputed righteousness. But I believe He's talking about practical, actual righteousness. Us doing what is right. Um, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification are inseparably joined. This is what I mean by that. Justification means how we're declared innocent in Yahweh's court of law. That's by our Savior and what our Savior did for us. But if we are justified, we will become more and more sanctified. Sanctified means we become more holy, more set apart. Anybody that is genuinely justified, James 2, 14-26, Brother TJ went through this masterfully, where he says... I'll show you my faith or my justification by my works. Sanctification, see. So anybody that is justified genuinely will become more and more holy as they live in this life. Now, some people don't ever get to live very long. There was a criminal on the torture stake beside Yeshua. And he'll be in the kingdom because Yeshua said, Truly I tell, tell you today, I believe then you put the comma after the word today. You will be with me in paradise. And paradise is another way to speak of the kingdom. Now, that criminal on the torture stake, he did not have the opportunity to repent with his works. But Yeshua knew that there was true repentance in his heart. So he'll be in the kingdom based on what? Grace and mercy. How all of us will be in the kingdom based on grace and mercy. But I guarantee you, you could take this to the bank. If by some chance they let that criminal off of the torture stake and let him live his life, he would have been a commandment keeper from that day forward. Because Yeshua told us that he had a new heart and a new mind. So, Yeshua is teaching rewards here based upon our works. And then last but certainly not least, some people are scared of the verses that talk about works. But we should not hide our eyes and act like these verses do not exist. That's right. There are some people in the Torah community that are scared of verses that talk about grace and mercy. I'm not scared of those verses. I love those verses. But a lot of people think that when you teach grace and mercy that you're okaying sin. No, you're just teaching that that's what covers over sin. Listen, all of us need grace and mercy. I need it every day. I wrote a song one time that says, I need your mercy again. I know I came yesterday, but I need you every day. So give me all of your grace. We all need it every day. So we shouldn't be scared of grace and mercy teaching. Anybody that will have salvation, it will be on the basis of the grace of Yahweh. But we also should not be scared, as many in Christianity are, of the verses that talk about works. Because they're plentiful. We went over some of them today. But there's some people that they're scared to death when a verse talks about works. 
But yet, what did we see here today when Yeshua says, Therefore, whoever shall teach and practice breaking the least of the commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you do them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, that's a works verse. Not a grace verse there. That's a works verse. So we ought to take heed to it. Next week, I'm going to cover a second way to view Matthew 5.19 versus least in the kingdom. Another way to view it. I'm not sure which way is accurate, so I'm going to give you both and then let you decide which one you want to take. You know, But I'll give you both schools of thought. And then we'll cover what does Yeshua mean when He says, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. Now you've got to remember, in first century Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the strictest sect in Judaism, in Hebrew faith. But what does He mean? What does He mean? Your righteousness must go beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. I believe I can prove to you what that means. I don't think it's that hard at all. I think a lot of people miss it because a lot of people rush straight to imputed righteousness of Christ instead of determining what the text means by the context in which it's used. So we'll ask ourselves, how, how can our righteousness be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? And I have to believe what Yeshua said. If it's not, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I have a word of prayer as we close and then we'll do our testimony service and prayer request service. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. It truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to believe it today. Forgive us where we fall short. Let us, Yahweh, not seek to be least, but seek to be great. But at the same time, let us realize that we will be in Your kingdom based upon Your grace and Your mercy. I love You, Yahweh. For it is through Yeshua the Messiah that I pray this prayer to you, Holy Father. Amen. Yahweh bless you.